and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What, uh, what, 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 what's going on? Why did I just glitch? That was just a horrible joke. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> no, that was good. Um, good. You'll, you'll see why I said that in a second. First, I want to get to our panelists. We have Justin Dorfman on the chat today. Justin, say hi. Hello, hello. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. We have me. Hi, everyone. And we have an awesome guest. Super excited to introduce Jen Schiffer. Hello. Good morning. Jen Schiffer is or good afternoon or good evening. One of them. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you're listening, good midnight. If you're listening to this after midnight, go to sleep. Go to bed. Uh, <laughs> Jen Schiffer is the director of community at Glitch. She lives in Jersey City, where she's calling from. Jen, can you tell us a bit more about what Glitch is and what you do there? So Glitch, which you can find at glitch.com, is a web-based IDE and encoding community. We pitch it as a place where you can go from idea to code to sharing in seconds. So we want people to, when they have that aha moment of like, oh, I want to like make a thing or I want to prototype a thing at work, or I just need somewhere to put my awesome web app, Glitch is the place to put it. And we give you the editor to work on it. And we auto deploy your code as you update it. So you don't have to worry about DevOps and how to get the stuff on the web. We do that all for you. And we also have a large community of users who are creating really awesome open source apps that you can be the source of. We basically like kind of, I don't know, pioneer is a strong word, but I think we're one of the first platforms that let you view source of server-side code, which is not a thing browsers let you do for obvious reasons. But you can find a bunch of full stack web apps and see how they work and you can remix them and build them like on your own. So is this largely for a, well, also that's awesome. Is this largely for art projects? Do you have any functional code that's being used like to run businesses that are on Glitch as well? Or Yeah, we have a very varied, vibrant community doing all sorts of stuff. We have lots of immersive web experiences. I yeah. was writing about some of those yesterday. And we have people who have built their startup MVP on Glitch to then raise, like one company raised like a million dollars off of MVP they built on Glitch. We have Wow. People at the big four companies that are building tools internally and also showcasing their APIs on Glitch so that they can get users using their APIs in seconds versus going through the slog of going through the docs and being like, where do I type this curl statement if I'm making a web page? Yep, like yep, Glitch yep. is a great place for you to show already working examples. So there's a lot of stuff, but we do have like a fresh and fun aesthetic that I think is even more welcoming to the creative coding and, and art community. So you'll see a lot of that as well. What company raised a million dollars on your platform? You're the MVP, that sounds really interesting. I honestly forget the name of it. I believe it was a company based on providing WordPress development support. It was, uh, this has happened months into us launching Glitch. But yeah, it was just a place to quickly, like it's also a collaborative editor. So you have multiple users coding with you at the same time. And you could also just share the URL to the project and the editor view. So it's really great when you're working on a team at work. It's just super quick sharing. No need to have anybody else set up a dev environment. The dev environment setup is just click this URL. And so we find a lot of folks that are taking it to work 
and yeah, able to build an MVP is great. And that was three and a half years ago. Glitch is so much more powerful now. I can imagine that company would have been able to like, just like keep building on the project on Glitch. But, you know, we're a baby three and a half years ago. The web was so different three and a half years ago. So true. Yeah. I don't remember three and a half years ago. It's just been, it's been a tough year. <laughs> yeah. So Glitch is kind of like Twitch on steroids. It's kind of how I'm thinking of it in my head, right? You can share with other people and share as you code and then also just have it be open source, right? Do you have like video streaming as well? Can people see you live code on Glitch? People can see you live code. They see the in the editor what's going on. They can yeah. see where you are coding at. Unless you want to go private, you can make your code private and so no one can see it. But we don't have any like video or audio or chat on the platform. And that was like a point of decision that we had made early on. You know, we're still a small company and moderation is a really hard and important task to do. And you really shouldn't rush into that, especially if you're not ready to scale. And we've seen a lot of people, I mean, myself included, that have streamed on Twitch coding on Glitch. We had done a, a season of Twitch streaming using Glitch with a former colleague, Potch. It's a fun platform to also let other people view. Even like on Twitch, people would be viewing the, the code on Twitch, but they could also open the Glitch app on their own browser so they can get an even closer look and control of how big the editor is and stuff like yeah. that. I don't know how many times you've seen somebody live coding and you're like, can you like zoom in or like make the text bigger? It's nice to be able to be like, if this editor view is like, if you don't like dark mode or you don't like light mode or you don't like how big the text is, you could actually just pop this link open on your own computer so you could get a better look. Is that the show you do every Wednesday or is that something else? Oh, that's something else. The Potch on Twitch show is from uh, last year. The show I do now is separate from work. It's called Hoobastank 2. It's like a internet humor variety show that I do uh, with um, I three other co-hosts. I remember Hoobastank from high school. It's so funny. <laughs> I just want to say, okay, the way I know of Jen is her XOXO festival talk in 2016 she mentioned California style sheets and I was rolling on the floor and everyone was looking at me at work and they're like, what are you laughing at? And I just sent them the link. They're like, oh my God, that's genius. But there was some blowback from that. And has that all been resolved? Have people been like, oh, okay, it was, it was a joke? So yeah, I think a large number of my followers were introduced to me in... 2014, 2016, when I was writing a lot of web developer satire, which nobody was doing. Again, I'm not going to say I was the first, but I think I was the first popular one to be doing it. And, you know, tech is very serious. Everything we do is very serious, life and death. There's no root for absurdist humor, especially from a woman. Please, I should God be. Forbid. Why am I spending my time being funny when I should be spending my time proving that every green square on my GitHub is a valid contribution to yeah. the industry? So around the time Medium had started, 2013-ish, whatever, I just entered actually the tech industry because I was in academia. I was teaching computer science and I was like, now I want to like build computer science. And I was working at the MBA and Medium came out and I was just seeing so many people being so not even just serious, but like plain rude in blog comments and stuff like that. Cause back then, like all blogs had 
comment systems and stuff. It's another right. thing that kind of went away. The way that people try to prove that women in tech don't belong there are with like gotchas. It's like pointing out things that they think are wrong, or maybe they are wrong because we're not allowed to be wrong, but everyone, you know, screws up sometimes. And so I was like, how do I spin that around? I can do gotchas as well. And even better, you know, I'm from South Brooklyn. Our language is just gotchas and banter and stuff. Yeah, I started writing posts on Medium, which everyone thought was just thought leadership. It was like cool and new looking and invite only. So everyone had this assumption that if you were writing on it, that you were like prestigious and like being paid for it. And so I got an invite somehow and started writing satire. And a lot of people got it. A lot of people didn't. And when they didn't, the way they responded was, you know, trying to gotcha me back. And, and, and in like in rude ways, if it was rude, then I would like call them out on it and be like, I don't know, I was lying. And the thing is, is with satire, there has to be increasing levels of absurdity. And I could talk for days about that satire, especially with tech, even just like calling myself Satan in my bio. It's just kind of like a, you, you have to throw something in to make it very obvious that like I'm not completely hinged. And yeah, even just saying CSS stands for California style sheets. I mean, that could be valid. We've named things in our world after way more ridiculous things. Python. Uh, Python's named after Monty Python. Why? Right, you know? right. Like we, just, we're, we're all like... I'd never knew that. Thank yep. you. We're all nerds and bad at naming things, but we think that we are super cool and like great at everything we do. And like that friction, a bit of that leads to this, I don't know, phenomenon. But yeah, not only people are like, that's not what it means, but you know, they get really like mad about it and passionate about no. it. We're so passionate no. about being more correct than another person. It, and uh, I just put on full display. For everyone to see the best part of it is when you said it's a standard and i just like was laughing gave it harder it's just so brilliant so thank you for doing that a lot of people ask me like why i stopped writing it and for one it's you know it's a lot of hassle for not much i guess like positive payback i think i started hitting diminishing returns on reaction and then I, I went from being an individual contributor to managing teams. And so when you go up in your career, it's not fun to kind of like punch down. And I had explored like, what if I wrote satire about management? That's just <laughs> too easy. I think most management blog posts are so ridiculous. I love cringe reading LinkedIn. I was like, no, this is too, this is too much. So... But, and the web development community, specifically JavaScript that I've worked within, it like looks and like feels and acts a lot differently than it was six years ago, for better or for worse. And so I'm like, I don't need to write this stuff anymore. And the stuff that I did write, people still encounter it. I still get negative comments. I still get people clapping for it because Medium now you can like clap for things. 50,000 times. So, yeah. So it's just kind of like, an evergreen five to six-year-old space that lives on Medium, the website. Jen, I remember when Glitch came out and I was fascinated and also confused by the whole idea. I didn't know if this was intended to be something more like Code Sandbox, where you go there and you build projects 
And as I learned more and more, it was kind of an anomaly of a project versus anything else I've ever seen. Tell me about the types of developers or the users. Can you give me an archetype of the users of Glitch? Oh, sure. It definitely varies. I think that, let's say like a professional developer who codes by day, but also has ideas for things that they can use their skills for either fun and or good by night. So I think like a typical day is like you're probably at work, maybe you're a dev advocate and your company is an API and you want to get users, like you want to grow or engage your users and get them started with the API as soon as possible. Even if your API is not do what other APIs do, I think they're all still in competition in terms of who has good docs and what is good with getting started. I think a lot of folks on Twitter and blogs will often praise or raise issues with how hard it is to get like on-ramped or onboarded with an API. And so you're using Glitch to build those examples and show them off. And then maybe you have an idea of how to automate a process at work. Like you're trying to like gather email addresses and you're like, I don't want to you know, use a Google form or something like that. I want something that I'm more in control of and I know how to build a form. So it's like, cool, I'll like just make a Glitch app search for email lists because you're like, I don't need to start from scratch. There's probably a lot of those there and you search that and you find one and you remix it and you can just like update the CSS to make it look like your own. I'm basically describing how I use Glitch and I'm biased because I'm a huge fan of myself clearly, but I I use use Glitch. Yeah. Like I use, I use Glitch every day for my own side stuff. I mean, even Hoobastank too, that show that I do, that's not work-related. I often am building glitch apps for different fun segments that we're, we're doing. And they're fun little weird projects that I would never create if I had to, gosh, haven't set up a dev environment with like AWS. Guess I got to like get this website I built locally onto the web somehow. And like, yeah. do I need to set up a domain? It's such a slog that I feel like that. I feel like, like, I don't know about y'all, but like, we all have a lot of unfinished side projects. <laughs> That's kind of like the curse of the uh, programmer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a lot of that is because of issues we run into of like how to get it like online and shared. And so I think professional developers are using Glitch to be able to get their ideas shareable in work for like prototypes and demos and then for their side projects outside they're like taking it with them home and working on that kind of stuff then there's like the student and teacher like the academic area glitch is free to use we have a paid tier that gives you your projects stay awake 24 7 and more just space and stuff like that but a lot of students don't need a lot of extra power on their projects. And teachers do not, unfortunately, get enough money to invest in the classroom. And often I talk to a lot of teachers who are social studies teachers that are tasked with teaching code. So they're kind of wow. trying to dive in and learn to get ahead of what you know they're teaching their students who are often a lot more technical savvy than they are. And Glitch is free. It's portable. A lot of kids like in high school are getting Chromebooks at home or like in school, you can't just like install anything. It's a sysadmin's dream 
but it's a teacher's nightmare when you're so constrained of what tools that you can give your students to succeed. And so we have a lot of classrooms that are using Glitch to get them started on projects, which is cool to see. Girls Who Code, great organization, uses Glitch. There's a lot of really other awesome organizations geared towards teaching people how to code and getting more rad young folks into the pipeline. And yeah, and they're using Glitch and that's great as well. And then lastly, I think we're seeing a lot of artists and entertainers that are realizing because of the pandemic and quarantine that they have to think of new virtual ways to bring their art to the masses. And so we're seeing a lot of artists that are bringing exhibitions of theirs to Glitch. There are art galleries and gaming conventions that can't run in person safely. And so they're creating, you know, massive online multiplayer experiences where you can like go to this Glitch app and you're in this like virtual world, kind of like a lo-fi second life and play games and look at stuff all on the screen. And so we're seeing a lot of events being created and people existing within a Glitch app. And so we have people that are developers by day and also not. And they're finding that, and this is what we're trying to do, we're democratizing building the web. We want everyone to be able to build the web. And we're lowering the barrier by not making you have to know how to be a DevOps engineer for a moment, but also just showing you that code can be a tool to solve many different solutions, not just startups building MVPs. It's not just that though. I also see, which is great in your entire career, not just you at Glitch, but you're trying to like add humor and fun to coding, right? As opposed to just making it a very serious business where we're all very serious. And it's kind of perfect that you're at Glitch. It seems like it's a perfect job for you because it's a great place to do that, which is excellent. One of the questions I have is, especially talking about students, you're doing this great work of making it easy for people to code. You're democratizing coding. That's amazing and awesome. What are some of the difficulties you're having? How is it hard to use Glitch? What could be better for teaching open source in general? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah. When you go to Glitch and you make a project, it's just public by default. And that's the case, I think, with a lot of the other in-browser IDEs. And I think what I started encountering that was new to me working for a web IDE was this, I guess, a lot of folks being introduced to the idea of sharing code, open sourcing their work. We will have folks that, you know, will build something on Glitch. Or they'd had built something on like CodePen or Code Sandbox that somebody copied and remixed onto Glitch and vice versa. And there's like a, oh, this person like stole my code. I don't know about the other platforms. I know CodePen like Glitch is there's a yeah. MIT license. If you don't add your own license to Glitch, MIT is a default and same as for CodePen. And so I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with a lot of like young developers who are in high school with Discord exploding. There's so many gamers that are learning to code because they're building bots for Discord. And there's a friction between their daytime at school where they're told, no, you can't copy. Copying is bad. Copying is plagiarism. And then they go off into the web development world and it's like closed sourcing your code is bad and open sourcing is good. And I've had to have a lot of really interesting sometimes trying conversations 
teaching than that, not just Discord developers, but all, all different kinds. And it's very frustrating. When you're young, you often look for permission from an elder to be allowed to do a thing. And I found myself in an elder position, which is surreal. Because I'm like the dingus that's like writing text satire and like goofing around. And then like I put on my serious hat and, you know, I often in this industry feel like three kids in a trench coat, but it's a nice fancy trench coat. Um, (laughs) My introduction to open source wasn't until I was in college. My undergrad was 2003, 2007. And I got introduced to open source because someone from Sun Microsystems had come to our computer science department. I was studying computer science. This is pre-Oracle. And we had used Sun Microsystem machines and we often had to have people come by to like remind us how to use them, I guess. And I learned about the Open Solaris operating system project, RIP. Again, Oracle. I hope you can hear me hissing. But I was, I was so chuffed at the idea that like there's this big project with these like grown-up developers and they're like celebrating the idea of collaboration and sharing and like building this thing together alongside in tandem with a closed source enterprise system, like which is Solaris. And I thought that was so cool. And so when I graduated college, I went to grad school and then I started teaching at the same university. I was indoctrinated into open source. I was like, this is it. Cause like all these projects like Drupal and WordPress are open source too. And like, they are taking over. This is like really great. And I mean, Linux as well. It seems like that exposure is not happening as much with students today, or at least maybe in college if they go to college. But nowadays we know that like you don't have to go to college to thrive as a web developer. And that's great. The barrier entry is lowered. But back then when I was going in, it was like Google was requiring that you went to a school of a certain standard in order to get through the interview process, even for an internship. And so I wonder like how we can get open source education into high schools. I mean, even middle school, even any introduction to like writing code, having students work on projects together and sharing and not just like group projects that are separate from each other, but again, like collaborating with each other. Cause I think that it would be hard, but important to teach students the difference between copying without consent and copying with consent. And consent is also, of course, another really important topic that we should be teaching our students. And so yeah. why not kill two birds with one stone? But I feel like we have to educate the educators. And when I say we, I'm like, who is we? Who would be responsible for like doing that? So yeah, that's something that's been like kind of like on my mind a lot because I personally do not want people to click that lock icon when they create a glitch project. Like I want, unless like it's for work and it's not allowed to be public, but often I find that they'll click that lock or they'll keep that GitHub repo private because they're terrified of what's going to happen when the so-called floodgates open. And just a brief anecdote, like on that, when glitch launched, people were keeping their code public and most of the projects are overwhelmingly public. 
And it was so great to see because when I started using GitHub, it took me a long time to feel comfortable open sourcing. My biggest open source project is make8bitart.com. And I kept the code closed for like a year because I was just terrified of what was going to happen. Again, it was a lot more hostile. It still can be hostile. Don't think that it's perfect out there. But it was a lot different six or seven years ago when I like first open sourced it. And it's nice to see that with Glitch, people are more open to it because it just feels normal because it is. It's like the default. That was a lot. But like I said, I can talk about this stuff for hours. It is a point where like I really get what you're saying about, especially in schools where they're teaching, you know, sharing versus not sharing. And I think one of the biggest things with open source sustainability is licensing and not understanding the license. And I think that's one thing that definitely could be better communicated, especially in education or high school, junior high, college, whatever it might be, because I think that will definitely remove some of the barriers in terms of sharing. Yeah. I mean, licenses are a whole other beast. I mean, I don't think any of us here are lawyers. And even if we were, I still don't think we would have a grasp on licenses. I worked for a major sports league and media company, and we had lawyers come in to talk to us about open source licenses because we were using jQuery and all this other stuff just to try to give us a rundown of like what to look out for. And they tried, but like some of us were just, no, this is like not it, you know, there's just so much that's not known. And we're seeing these court cases play out between these big companies like Google and Oracle and, you know, Google and Uber when it comes to like software theft and all that. It's so cringy to watch because the people that are responsible for making the call in these cases, some of them understand a bit, but like most of them don't. But that's totally fair because most of us don't. Right. That's why it's like a different kind of emotional labor to talk to users about whether something was stolen maliciously or if it's this is the nature of the platform, this is the nature of the community because their habits and their thoughts around this are coming from people that don't understand it. I don't think there are many, if any, like high school teachers that are anti-open source and indoctrinating their students to be against open source. That might be a future, though, if we don't like get ahead of it and talk more about that. I think we've made a lot of progress in terms of getting companies to allow open source to be used in their products. I don't think that's in part to education. I think that's in part to capitalism. They're like, oh, free code. Like we can consume all of this and not give any back. So Mm -hmm. we don't want that to happen deeper into the younger education levels. Yeah, that's fascinating. What a thought project. I'm trying to think of of what kind of teacher wouldn't like open source and how they would look. And the only person I come up with as like a figure is a super anarchist teacher who's like open source lies to you about expectations for what you have to do in the long run. And that's kind of an issue. But otherwise, I can't think of a case. And I don't even think it has to be like we can teach teachers how to teach it. It's just that we don't give teachers enough time, money and like resources to prepare students for anything, their future in this space, because they're pushed into this corner where it's like, standardized testing. 
And until you make room for qualitative responses to scenarios around open source in high school standardized tests, or even better, get rid of standardized testing, it would be incredibly difficult to make it more widespread curriculum. I do know high school teachers that are teaching open source, yeah, but they are edge cases. They're not the standard, but they're the goal. And they just happen to be really lucky and work like a school in a space where they can do that. And that's the same with so many other subjects. I mean, teaching high school students about taxes. Why don't we teach them how to do their taxes in the U.S.? And there's no standardized test question about that. Why would they teach that? It's a, a systemic issue. I'm thinking back to the first time, well, I guess the only time I did Hour of Code. So I went to this public school in Lynn, Massachusetts, which is a pretty underserved community. And I went into this room and like, I, you know, everyone had their little iPads that were given them by the state, I think. And so they're all doing scratch. And I realize now that, you know, teaching kids how to do loops is interesting, but none of it was collaborative. The students were all focused on their iPad and not working with each other, not sharing scratch implementations. And that was a systemic failure of the system. And then I'm also thinking that the majority of what the students wanted to know, like when I talked about, I do open source and I'm working for MIT right now, and this is what's happening. And this one kid at the back is like, do you get paid? And I'm like, yeah, I, I do okay. But he's like, <laughs> but yeah, but, but how much money do you make? I do fine. It was really interesting to watch. Like I'm trying to teach about opportunity, but also like I'm not doing it well because it really should be collaborative. And that's just, thank you so much for reframing that whole experience in my mind. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I do know that code education is a space that is ever evolving. And, you know, the ACM, Association for Computing Machinery, like has really rad computer education organization within it. And there is a lot of focus on improving it. And, you know, I think like, especially now with remote learning, there's been a lot of research on going from in-classroom to remote, specifically around higher education. And that was a lot of my focus when I was at the university was how do we get a master's in computer science program like online? And yeah, at that time it had, you know, basically it, it was the word that it's unethical to have students stare at a 45 minute PowerPoint presentation because it doesn't do them any good. So how do we break this down into like smaller pieces? That's why we see a lot of online learning courses with these like bite-sized videos. Cause like a lot of research in academia around how to improve computer science education led to that. So it's like, how do we get that same focus and spread the messaging to the high school area about all this kind of stuff? There's definitely a lot of work going on in the university space right now. Like Rochester just opened up OpenRIT, which is one of the first like major OSPOs. That's not just a lab, but like an entire department dedicated towards open source. There's stuff going on at Santa Cruz. I know, I think we've had Carlos on this podcast where they have like a, a program where enterprise comes and works with PhD students to do open source so that they actually get funding so that it's not just locked away in academia, but they work directly with industry to work on better storage systems. But that hasn't really trickled down to like high schools yet. So that'll be really interesting to watch the next five, six years as that happens. I'm really yeah. glad that you're doing this work at Glitch though. Unfortunately, this is around time. So I want to make sure that we have time for Spotlight. So before we move on to that, Where can people read more about your awesome thoughts or your satire or anything? Where can they find you on the web? So basically, I think like my online welcome mat is genmoney.biz. That's J-E-N-N-M-O-N-E-Y dot B-I-Z. It's a glitch app. It's a static site. 
and it's open source. So you can view all the code. I think my readme has some cool ASCII art in it. And yeah, you can find all my stuff there. I do a lot. You know, I'm on Twitter at Jen Schiffer, my open source project that all different kinds of people are using every day, not just coders, is make8bitart.com. And I blog at livelaugh.blog because I decided that I'm going to enter into my final form as a white woman named Jennifer and become a lifestyle blogger. So <laughs> follow my path there. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Spotlight. This is the part of the show where we talk about cool projects that we think need more light or that have helped us get us along the way. Justin, what do you got for us? Well, I mean, speaking of make8bitart.com, that's my spotlight for today. Eric picked it as well, but I made him choose a different one. What's really cool about it is, and this is what I'm going to be doing this weekend because it's so cool, but if you close the browser and then reopen it, it saves the state. So if you accidentally close a tab, you know, you can continue. So I thought that was really cool. It just reminds me of kid pics from like back in the early 90s. I used to use it and this just gives me so much nostalgia and that's why I'm choosing it. And Jen, it was such an honor to have you on. I really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this with everyone. I think it's going to be a really, really great episode. Thank you. I also want to note that make8bitart.com is also a glitch app. The project name is make8bitart. And so you can view the source and see how I use service workers to make that offline stuff work. And that's love it. Love it. Love it. Eric, what do you got? First, I got to agree with Justin. This has been a fantastic interview. And, and I'm also really grateful that you took the time to come on the show. For me, since my last endeavor, I've really kind of simplified my life and focused more on bringing simplicity into my home. And one of those things is just a simple hobby, which is uh, 3D printing. So I went out and bought a 3D printer for a couple hundred bucks. And I've been printing these upgrades like nonstop for it. But one of the things that happens is when you're running a print and you're not around, sometimes what happens is what they call spaghetti, where the filament doesn't stay attached. And all of a sudden you come back and it looks like you got a great big nest on your printer. There's an open source project. It's a paid service, but it's also open source for self-hosting called the spaghettidetective.com. And they're completely open source. But what it does is it it will use your webcam and it will watch your print as it going. And it uses machine learning to know like, oh, it looks like it's starting to create the spaghetti. And you can actually have it turn the printer off at that moment to save you from all of that lost filament. So fantastic community, fantastic project. It's called the spaghettidetective.com. It's so cool. I like that the website says how many print hours have been watched. At this point, it's been like 19 million. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things like it's a perfect hobby for those who are creative and also who like to, to build things and who like to code really. So for me, I, when I landed in it, it's like the best hobby in the world. And, and those listening can't see this, but I just printed this last night. It's like every morning I wake up and there's a new gift on my table. I love it. What is that? It looked this like a, a doodad. Spool mount. So one other pick, I guess, is Thingiverse. It's a website where you can find all these 3D models that you can print. This is a spool holder and it attaches to the side of my printer. And then those at home can't see, but you see up here that thing. I'm going to move this guy onto here and then it's going to be on the side. Cool. So anyway, that's so a whole bunch of stuff that people listening at home don't 
understand, but follow me on Twitter or ask me any questions if you want to know about 3D printing. Speaking of Twitter, my spotlight is Jim Kang. Jim Kang is one of my favorite people in the internet space because he makes stupid stuff a lot and he's really good at it. Death Mountain used to be his website. Now it's Smidgeo, S-M-I-D-G-E-O.com, I believe. He has made a lot of bots. I think my favorite is probably God Tributes, where it's just Twitters and you could just like tweet at it, I think. But anyway, it's just always the same sort of thing. Like, what is it today? Cockapoos for the cockapoo god. Golden retrievers for the golden retriever cat. And it's just like always in that form. And it just has this little gif of like this dude giving God tributes, you know, subulations for the subulation God. I don't even know what that means, but I just love it so much. It's so silly. And it makes me think tech is okay. So Jim Kang, you're an amazing maker. Please keep doing what you're doing. Jen, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Jim Kang's dumb bones yep. bot that tries to assemble a skeleton <laughs> with the bones <laughs> randomly. You have a skeleton uh, in the background behind you. Oh, yeah. My apartment's full of bones, full of skeletons. <laughs> um, and it's not even a Halloween thing. Just seems to fit right now. So for my spotlight, and I was prompted to think about, I believe, something that provided value or impact on my personal career or life. And this might come off as joking, but serious. And that's the jQuery project. jQuery was definitely near at its peak when I got into the industry in like 2012, 2013. And that community gave me my first stage to speak on. I met some of my closest friends in the community locally and from far away in a jQuery IRC channel. Shout out to my OT folks. And it really lowered the barrier entry to writing my first line of code and watching something fun happen on the page, even if it was just fading in or fading out or just like it really gave me a visual way to learn about the DOM and how to go through it. And then like reading the source code at jQuery gave me such a deep understanding of JavaScript. And jQuery is a great library to read the source code because it's like smaller than a lot of other libraries. So it's a lot more digestible. And every once in a while, I do like to go back to like the latest version and read it and, you know, kind of see what's happening. So I am forever indebted to jQuery, the code and also the community around it. So thank you for saying that, because at first I thought you were trolling, but, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but 70% of the web still runs on jQuery like websites. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was awesome to have you. And that's it. That's what we got. Hooray. Larry, y'all. Thanks, Jeff. Bye.